0: Hey, good morning, church. Really is good to be together on this first Sunday of a New Year, and so my personal warm welcome to you as well. I'm excited about this year, excited about what God is going to be doing in our presence and in our midst and in our ministry in your lives as well. So we look forward with hope to all that God has for us. It is Sunday, January 2nd of 2022. And God is on his throne today and all of God's people said, amen. And he is. There's that great passage in the book of Genesis when Jacob has gone out into the desert and he is laying down for sleep that night. His head is placed on rocks that he used as a pillow. That's a rough night of sleep. And then the angels are descending and ascending on a ladder that he sees in a dream and he wakes up and he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he named that place Bethel. And my prayer for you and for me is not only in this place, but in our, our life together this coming year that we can say that this is Bethel. This is the place of God. This is the house of God and where God is working. And he is working in so many places around the world, certainly just not here, but we pray that God will, in a very powerful way, do his work among us. Beginning next Sunday, we'll be launching a new sermon series for the year. We're going to be using, a little bit as a guide for us, this book by Daryl Dash called Eight Habits for Growth. And so beginning next Sunday, we're going to take a a habit a week until the end of February. It'll be an eight-week series then, our messages will then be based upon some of the things that we'll be learning in this book. The messages will really be independent of this book, but this will be your guide. And so we are asking each of you to pick up a copy of this, not just as couples, but every person who will be a part of our worship services in the weeks to come, you need your own book, you need your own copy. And so we've worked with Moody and even I know Daryl, and we've worked that price down to about $7 per copy. That's better than anywhere else. And... And exercise is only as good as the effort you put into it. This isn't just something to read. This will be a manual for you as we talk about building into our lives the kind of spiritual disciplines and habits that will be necessary for us to grow spiritually in 2022. So pick that up in the tables, the tall tables in the commons. And uh, thank you for beginning the process. Our our, our abide will continue to be produced and published. It will be in connection with this. And so we'll explain more next week. Hey, before we open God's word, I do want to extend a a warm welcome to to Ethan and Becky Appel. I I saw them in the commons. And Ethan, Becky are back here, former director of our student ministries. (laughs) Welcome, guys. Good to see you. And Becky is happily expecting as well, so congratulations in that. And Micah and Matthew Robinson are sitting over here, sons of Jeff, yes, and Jen Robinson. Pastors who were formerly on staff here, so grateful for for you guys and for your presence here this morning. Let me ask you to take your Bibles and go with me, if you will, to the book of Zephaniah. First one there wins the book of Zephaniah. I simply want to bring a word of encouragement to you on this first Sunday of 2022. It's a word for us on how to stay sane in the madness that is all around us in the last two years i have noticed people who have fallen down one wormhole or another for any variety of reasons and maybe you are in such a wormhole right now and i want to simply encourage you this morning by by giving you one of the most unique pictures of god to be found anywhere in the bible it's a picture of the god who sings. A.W. Tozer famously remarked that what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. I think he's right. In fact, I know he's right. But I wonder when you think about God, do you imagine him singing? And not just singing a splendid hymn, but singing a love song, a love song over you. That's the picture that I want us to see this morning, and and I simply want to crack your heart wide open by seeing this sublime picture of God singing over you. As I have invited you to open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Zephaniah, that book is tucked in between two other prophets, both whose names begin with an H, Habakkuk and Haggai. He's right there in the middle, sandwiched between those two prophets. And before we arrive at the fabulous picture of God that Zephaniah will present to us, it's in chapter 3, we have a little territory to cover beforehand. And here's a warning. It will be rough sledding for a little bit before we get to the good part. No peeking, so no looking at chapter three ahead of time. But if you've never read through Zephaniah or if it's been a while, it's a slog for about three quarters of the way. Yet even here, we have to understand something about the love of God. It is mesmerizing, but it's not mushy. God's love is comforting, but it's not always cozy. The Lord is fierce. Let's begin this morning simply by asking who is Zephaniah and what's his story? Because the opening verse of of Zephaniah, and we'll read it in just a moment, indicates that he has spent some time thinking about, maybe even researching his family's genealogy. And and in verse 1, he writes, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. And he is identifying here some of the major branches of his family tree going back four generations, beginning with his father, then his grandfather, his great-grandfather, and then finally stopping at King Hezekiah, who was his great-great-grandfather. Zephaniah is not dropping names in order to impress. He's one of the few prophets of whom we can say royal blood flowed through his veins. He is the great-great-grandson of a very good king, Hezekiah. I suppose if your great-great-grandfather was George Washington, you might mention that fact, maybe in a small company of friends, or maybe if you were ever given the opportunity to address the entire nation. That's what Zephaniah is doing here. He is about to address the entire nation of Judah, and he says, and by the way, my great-great-grandfather was king. Also in verse 1, he places the prophetic activity during the reign of Josiah. Josiah was king of Judah during a very critical point in the nation's history. For over 50 years prior to Josiah coming to the throne of of Judah, it was led by some pretty lousy monarchs who who wreaked havoc on the entire country. And for a country that was established on monotheism, the belief in in one God, idolatry among the people of Judah was being openly promoted during that time. The sun and the moon were being worshipped from the rooftop of the Jerusalem temple. Other Canaanite deities were given honor. Religious prostitution was, was practiced as normal. Even the abomination of child sacrifice was endorsed. So when Josiah comes to the throne, he begins making some sweeping changes. He launches a, a series of reforms, many of them resulting from the, the discovery of the book of law, probably the book of Deuteronomy, and the repairs going on in the temple. And as a result of the discovery of the law of God, they began reading the Bible again as a people. So so Josiah repairs the temple as a place for worship. He tears down some idols. He fires all of the priests who were associated with the, with the worship of false idols. He reinstitutes the observance of Passover, which had sort of just slid away for years. But unfortunately, Josiah's reforms were 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 all very good, but much too late because the nation was irreparably broken. And when Josiah died in battle, his acts of reformation perished with him. Well, Zephaniah preached during the reign of Josiah. He preached during those exciting days of spiritual reformation. And verse 1 also indicates that, that God himself was speaking to Zephaniah so that when God spoke to him, he then spoke to the people and the word of the Lord came to him. And so what Zephaniah is doing in this short little book is that he is not just expressing his own opinion. God's word came to him like a force, like a burden. And he was under a divine mandate to deliver it as is. And so in his preaching, in his prophetic ministry, Zephaniah is doing one thing. He is confronting the people of God with the word of God. And for most of his book, that's what he does. He confronts the people of God with the word of God, beginning with the justice of God. Evidently, God wasn't pleased. He wasn't pleased with the state of Of the nation, he wasn't pleased with the state of his people, and Zephaniah was given the unenviable assignment of making that known. Verse 2, we get pretty quickly a feel or sense of this book. It's a pretty dramatic opening. Notice verse 2, I will, God is speaking, utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now that's a way to begin, huh? Using prophetic poetry, he warns all of humanity of God's imminent judgment. And the verbs say it all. How many times does he say, I will sweep, I will sweep, I will sweep. God is saying, I am pulling up my broom, and I will sweep everything away. And then changing the metaphor just a bit from a broom to a knife, God then adds, and they will be cut off. So Zephaniah's book is is like God pulling out a broom, God using a knife, or God even using a hammer, because he is pounding the judgment of god against complacency and apathy and corruption and short god is cleaning house and his house cleaning is without partiality no one is left out this this sweeping away will include all of humanity nothing is omitted it involves all animals and birds and sea life and people now i imagine reading Zephaniah for the first time and maybe nodding in agreement because we look at the madness of our world and say it's about time God takes his broom and does some sweeping. Go for it, God. Sweep it to him. But then Zephaniah adds in verse four, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Zephaniah is making it very clear that while God does have in his scope all of humanity, it also includes the people of God. In fact, that's where that's where judgment what, usually begins. And sometimes I catch myself thinking about all the ugly stuff in the world and just wishing that God would just again sweep it all away. And all those terrible people out there that are guilty of child sacrifice that he speaks of there in verse 5 and 6. And maybe you have secretly wished for the same thing. God, just go ahead and drop kick all that needs to be booted. The only problem is that we always want God to judge people out there, but God wants to deal with us in here, in our hearts, in our homes, in our churches, among those who already claim to know him. And that's where Zephaniah takes us. In verse 12, he says, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. It's a picture of God walking through the streets of Jerusalem, holding a lantern. And God is looking for someone. He is looking for someone who is righteous, who is blameless, who will follow him with all of his or her hearts. And and, and like Demosthenes of ancient Greece who searched Athens with a lantern trying to find one single person who was righteous, God is depicted in the very same way. Verse 12 continues, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. He is just kind of there. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them, though they plant vineyards they shall not drink wine from them. And on Zephaniah goes. Again, you can look and you can see it's just three chapters. Reading through Zephaniah doesn't take long. You can probably read through it in about 12 minutes total. It just feels long when you're reading it. Because it's the story of a, of a just God judging justly. And I'm not here to minimize that at all. It's just hard to hear, but necessary. So listen just to a little bit more, and then we're going to turn a corner. Verse 17, he says, I will bring distress on mankind so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord in the fire of his jealousy. All the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now there's a message for you on January 2nd time. Gather together, yes, gather together, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. And for most of his book, Zephaniah declares God's judgment. Why? Because God is just. Because God is holy. Because God hates sin. I'm reminded of John Bunyan's famous story called Pilgrim's Progress. At the beginning of the book, he introduces us to a man who goes by the name Christian, who is deeply troubled by what he's reading in the book. And and Bunyan begins this way, As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place and laid me down to sleep. and, And as I slept a dream, I dreamed that I saw a man with his face turned away from his home a book in his hand and a great burden upon his back. And I looked and saw him open the book and read therein. And as he read, he wept and trembled. And not being able to contain himself, he broke out with a lamentable cry saying, what shall I do to be saved? Here's a man who as a result of reading a book has this massive burden upon his back. And I can imagine someone saying, well, the problem with him is that it's that that book he's reading. He just needs to stop reading that book. Just put that book away. It will make him feel better. I don't know what Christian may have been reading. He could have been reading Zephaniah because you read some of that and it feels like one massive burden upon your back. And Zephaniah would say, first, we need to begin with the bad news. And the bad news is that God is just and he will execute justice. But then the final section of Zephaniah takes a turn. It is a turn that is so sudden, it gives you whiplash. It's, it's a turn that contains then some of the most outrageous yet sublime outstanding picture of God that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. It's, it's right here in chapter three that we will see a picture of God that defies comprehension. And it's exactly what I think we need to hear as we begin this new year together. It's one of the most tender and moving descriptions of the love of God to be found anywhere. And it is about, as we have just seen for two and a half chapters, about a love that we do not deserve. It's a love of another kind. A philosopher and Christian mystic, Simone Vey, the brilliant French thinker who died at the age of 43, or excuse me, at the age of 34 in 1943, said that there are only two things That can crack open the human heart, suffering and beauty. And this morning, I simply want to take the rest of our time, just a few minutes, and crack your heart open with the beauty of God. It begins in chapter 3, verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. And shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. All those judgments that for two and a half chapters he has just pounded. And he has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. And you shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Can you imagine a more rapturous understanding of God than that? He will exalt, that's with great passion over you without singing. When I walked into a jeweler's about 35 years ago to select an engagement ring for Lisa you know what they did? They took out a a strip of black velvet and then set a diamond ring against it. That cloth wasn't red or or green or, or white. It was pitch black. Because jewelers know their business. And they know what they're about. And they know that a diamond ring set against a canvas of blackness will just cause that diamond to sparkle. I was hooked. It's the most expensive thing I ever bought in my life, but I said, I'll, I'll do it. And that's the way Zephaniah wrote his book. Before he displays the love of God, he pulls out a black canvas and he allows us to see God's holiness and his wrath against sin. And then he sets the diamond of God's love against that black canvas. And it sparkles. I just want it to sparkle for you today. For two and a half chapters, we're left shaking in our boots. I didn't read it all to spare you. When suddenly God invites us to sing, verse 14, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. How can we sing in the midst of all of this? How can we shout with joy in the midst of this? But even more, he inexplicably himself begins to sing. And I'm reading through this book and I'm saying to myself, how did we get from there to here? How did we get from the darkness to the splendid reality of God's love? Him singing over us. What changed? Well, God hasn't changed. His attitude towards sin hasn't changed. Suddenly, he has not become more tolerant, more willing to live with things today than he did in the past. No, that's never true of God. So why the shift in tone? Well, verse 15 supplies the answer, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. It's his work. This is what God does And this is what we, in this now dispensation of grace, in this age of grace in which we live, we can look back at the cross of Christ and say, that's what that was all about. It is the Lord himself taking away his judgments against sin. And God did it. He removed his judgment. It's not because the people straightened up. They couldn't make it right. They can never make it right. None of us can. But this is what God does. And what I love about Zephaniah chapter 3, this is really the gospel of the Old Testament. This is the gospel of Zephaniah. Here's the gospel and the pages before even the days of Christ at the cross. The judgment against sin has taken place. This is what Zephaniah is pointing to. And now we live in the reality of it. And we know that in all that God did for us in Christ of the cross, he became our refuge. And the anger of God against sin fell on his son. Even as I say it, I still can't get over the glory and the magnitude and the power of that. The judgment of God fell upon his son, his blameless son, his perfect son, his beloved Let me leave you with four astounding truths. Pulled right out of Zephaniah chapter three. And these truths are for you and me, the people of God, those who have found Christ to be our refuge, those who have believed that Christ took what was meant for us and he absorbed it in his body on that tree. Number one, in his love, he will no longer rebuke you. The NIV translates the phrase, "He will quiet you with His love." One of the biggest problems we face in our fractured world is the reality of of our restlessness. I don't know about you, but I would say for the last two years, I think I've been anxious continuously. Maybe even uptight all the time. How do you relax in this kind of age? How do you relax in this kind of time? We live with this constant fretting and we're worrying and and maybe even arguing. And all of us are are so restless. Restless. Because of the times in which we live in nearly 2,500 years ago, the people of Zephaniah's day were also restless and they had put all their hopes in the nation of Assyria because they were the coolest people around. And now Assyria is fading and Babylon is coming to the rise and they're going to come and attack Israel and carry them off into exile. And as Zephaniah is prophesying and preaching, this impending exile is only 20 years away. The noose is tightening. And, and do you know what happens in exile? Everything is tossed into chaos. Everything is upended. Nothing Nothing stays the same. And the past two years for us has felt like living in exile. The pandemic has affected everything. We can't control it. We can't fix it. Change, sweeping change has been the consequence. Our nation has changed. Systems have changed. Church may even feel different. People are acting differently. People have moved out of our lives. Nothing seems stable. We are restless and anxious. And God steps in. And he says, there is one thing that will never change. It's unmovable. It's like a rock. It's constant. You can count on it every single day. It's the only safe place in the universe. God says, I want the churning in your heart to cease. As you turn to me, I will quiet you with my heart. Love. Friends, make it a practice. Make it a practice this year to keep yourself in the love of God. Let him quiet your anxious heart. He takes those who are terrified and upset and scared and filled with uncertainty, and he says to you and to me, shh, let me quiet you with my love. In his love, secondly, notice the rest of verse 17. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will hear me. I think every one of us needs to hear this. He will delight over you. That's the idea. So just take a deep breath and let that sweep over you. He will Delight over you. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the living God, the creator and redeemer, delighting over you? Honestly. Do you think God likes you? I mean, do you, do you think he really likes being with you? Or let me ask it this way. What do you think God feels when he thinks of you? Disgust? I think God thinks I'm a mess. Anger? I think God is mad at me all the time. Disappointment? I think God is so disappointed with me because I never get it right. At least that's the record that plays in the minds of most of us. Some of you may have had parents who treated you with contempt and that's how you think God treats you. You don't sense his love. What you feel is his scolding. But listen, he delights in you and he delights in you in the same way that he delights in his son of whom he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Pleased. He is well-pleased with you. He delights in you as he delights in Christ. And Jesus is utterly perfect and clean and pleasing and obedient. And when you have come to Christ, when you have trusted in him, then what... What God has done is he clothes you with the very character and righteousness of Christ. So all that Jesus is covers you. And so therefore God delights in you in the very same way that he delights in his son. That's the gospel. And that's what we rejoice in. This is, this is our hope. God is saying to you and to me, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Let me put it another way. When God looks at you, he beams over you. With delight. He will rejoice over you with gladness. And right now, I think you just need to breathe that in and maybe even say it to yourself. God rejoices over me with gladness. This is not touchy-feely. This is gospel stuff. God rejoices over you. Thirdly, in his love, God is honoring you. Verse 20 goes on to say, At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. God delights in his people, and he honors his people. You might think, wait a minute, I thought I was supposed to be the one who honors him. Well, of course, God is worthy of all of your honor. But listen to this, God has chosen by his grace and mercy to honor you. And he has honored us in the greatest way. For if he has given up his son, which is the hardest thing he could ever do, then will he not also through him give us everything else we need? So instead of thinking that God is frustrated with me, he doesn't like me, he's angry with me, he's disappointed with me, I feel judged all the time by who I am and what I do instead of flipping back and forth between he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me and loves me not, know this, that right now God is showing unbelievable honor to you because of Christ. And the final outstanding truth about God's love in his love He is rejoicing over you with singing. God singing over me, that's what it says. He does. He sings over you. He sings love songs over you. And when I think of this verse, I remember singing over my daughter, when she was a little one. Birth was traumatic. We didn't think she was going to make it. first time I ever saw my daughter, the doctor was running down the hallway of a hospital after an emergency C-section, holding her in his hand, yelling, she's not breathing. Those initial 72 hours, we didn't think she'd make it. And then bringing her home eventually by God's grace. And she cried a lot. She was uncomfortable as, as a little one. So I would just carry her for hours around the house, singing over her. Constantly. That's what God does, He sings over us constantly. And did you, did you ever imagine God sings over you the way maybe you as a mother or a father sang over your kids or the way you as a grandparent maybe sing over your grandchildren? Do you ever think that God really actually has an entire history of singing over you? He still sings over babies in the womb, and he sang over you the day you were born. He sang over you the day you began school. He he sang over you when you have felt hurt and all alone he he sang over you even when you tried to drift away and walk away from him he sang over you when you doubted he sings over you even now as as your heart turns to him in response of faith and say god you're amazing for all that you do and god is still singing and he sings when you ache, he sings when you're tired, he sings when you feel like giving up, he sings when you fall into sin, he sings over you when you feel like the entire world has gone mad and he is singing over you today. And so let me just ask you, is, is, there, is there something that is sucking the joy of life out of you this morning? Maybe you've hit a wall and you can't seem to get around it. Yes, something may be deeply hurting in your life but God is doing something good in your life. I know that because of his promises. And do you say, I can't rejoice in God's love because I'm such a mess. Again, look at verse 15. The Lord has taken away your punishment. Jesus born on the cross, it's gone. But you say, I cannot rejoice in God's love because I have too many forces working against me right now. Look at verse 19. He goes on to say, I will deal with all who oppress you. All your enemies all who seem to be coming against you. And you say, I cannot rejoice in God's love because I've seen too many people be wounded. My, my life is falling apart. My, I have a broken marriage. My, I'm, I'm failing. I'm in, I'm in sinking health. Look at verse 19. God says, I will deal with all of your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown and all the earth. Whatever... Whatever reason you may give for why hope feels as if it's escaped you, it can all be recaptured when you recognize this God who rejoices over you. Let nothing keep you from having the joy of the Lord and this reality of singing over you be taken away from you this year. So let me close with three questions for you to ponder as Mike comes and leads us in a time of communion. Just three basic questions. Number one, have you experienced the truth of verse 15? The Lord has taken away your punishment. When Jesus died on the cross, he took her punishment. He set us free. Are you trusting in the liberation of Christ and the redemption of Christ right now? Number two. Is there anything that is robbing you of joy today? Let nothing sadden your heart and take the joy of Christ away from you. Number three, how would your life change this year? If you accepted and believed all of the promises of Zephaniah chapter three, verses 14-14, especially through verse 17. How would your life change with this picture of God singing over you with delight? Let's pray. Our Holy Father, our hearts are just full of, and maybe, Father, because of what we have attempted to see, they are cracking in the best of ways because we cannot marvel or cannot fathom or, or understand how the God of heaven loves us this way. But, Father, if he will be the God who sacrifices his own son for us, then how will he not also be a God who shouts with joy over us, who beams over us with delight, who will quiet us with his love, and who will sing love songs over us? And so, Father, in these moments, then as we come to remember what Christ did, Father, help us to feel in every fiber of our being. Help us to feel it all the way down to our souls. What it means to be loved by you. in the greatest and in the most demonstrative way. Through the giving of your son. And even as we do eat and drink, let us, Father, hear you singing over us. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Pastor Mike, thank you.